from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Well, thank you all for coming and uh, being part of this this great evening. Uh, I am very honored and, and pleasure and, and, and pleased to be able to introduce uh, two very wonderful individuals. Um, uh, I'm Marco Sage, and I'm the, the, the professor of this class, Biology of Gender, which, which this is tagging on, along with. Um, and I would like to turn the table to, uh, to Dan Strangard, who is a local intactivist. And you'll hear more from Dan next week if you're part of the class. And, and if you're not part of the class, you're certainly welcome to join us at the same time, um, same hour next week. Um, I'll turn the tables to Dan. Thanks. I think you've probably all seen me, <laughs> uh, so you probably don't need that much of an introduction. So, sex, religion, politics, they all have a long and literally tortured history. Powerful forces, parents, society, culture, religion, doctors, both witch doctors and medical doctors, want to control your sex life. Sex is so powerful that individuals must not be allowed to make their own decisions about what they do with their own genitals. Today, we are able to discuss masturbation and premarital sex and extramarital sex and plural marriage, prostitution, homosexual sex, promiscuity, oral sex, anal sex, S&M sex, celibacy, etc. quite commonly. For a number of years, we are now becoming more comfortable talking about people who are intersex, transgendered, and transsexual. But until recently, there has been very little public discourse about genital cutting in this country. For example, most people I talk with are utterly shocked that UFC doctors used to cut the genitals of female children. Clitoridectomy and other operations now generally referred to as FGM, or female genital mutilation, but now often called to be culturally sensitive, female genital cutting, were part of standard medical procedure, though not common. Chicago was the center of female genital mutilation, or official surgery, is what they called it in the old days. And the Orofficial Surgery Society was based in Chicago from 1890 to about 1925. Blue Shield would pay for a female circumcision until 1977, and it only became illegal to cut a female child just 14 years ago. If you are looking for something scary to do on Halloween, go across the street and read the Journal of Orofficial Surgery in Corral Library. Earlier this year, we finally started a national discourse about male circumcision due to a voter initiative in San Francisco that would have banned medically unnecessary genital cutting of male children in the city of San Francisco. The law would have given male children the same legal protection against genital cutting that we give to girls. There was an immediate, intense reaction which resulted in a lawsuit against the ballot proposal. The judge ruled that male circumcision is a medical procedure and can only be regulated at the state level. An emergency bill was passed in California and signed last week by Governor Jerry Brown to ban future such proposals. 
and a similar nationwide ban is working its way through Congress now. It's, uh, the bill number is H.R. 2400, and it's called Religious and Parental Rights Defense Act of 2011. Keep in mind that our current law, the 1995 Prevention of Female Genital Mutilation Act, specifically states that the parents' cultural, religious beliefs, rituals, are not justification for cutting little girls' genitals. So, so much for equal protection under the law. The documentary film you're going to see now helped inspire the man who spearheaded the San Francisco Initiative, and the film is now on a 30-city North American tour because of the heightened interest in the issue. Cut, slicing through the myths of circumcision, was made here in Chicago by Eliyahu Angersargan, and parts were filmed here on campus. The first public screening occurred at our Hillel Center, the Jewish Student Center, in 2007 and received a big round of applause from an overwhelmingly Jewish audience. The Spurtis Institute for Jewish Learning downtown on Michigan Avenue showed it in 2008 for its annual event on contemporary issues in Judaism. And Cut received a standing ovation at a three-day international, uh, international human rights conference at the Law School of Keele University in England in 2008. There are University of Chicago and or Northwestern University physicians, faculty, staff, along with Chicago area rabbis, mohels, parents, ethicists, intactivists, that's me, and others in the film. You will be introduced to little known anatomy, development, and functions of the foreskin, and hear some very surprising and sometimes shocking viewpoints about male genital cutting. There will be a question and answer after the screening which will be audio recorded. The Q&As from this film tour can be listened to online at cutthefilm.com or as a free download from iTunes, along with a number of other interviews that Ellie has done with people on both sides of the issues since the San Francisco Voter Initiative began. If you wish to comment or ask a question at the film, please line up uh, in the aisle over there, and uh, Ellie will take as many questions as time allows. There are a couple of people in the film who are here tonight, including Ellie's father. Uh, so if you wish to ask questions of people that you see in the film, some of us might be here. Now, I understand some of you may need to leave before the end of the evening. There will be more information and someone to talk to outside the room. There's a table out there. If you wish to buy a DVD copy of the film, it, takes, it makes a really good and very useful present to people expecting a child, for example. Copies are on sale here for $20 instead of the usual $25, and if you buy two or more, it's $15 each. And if you should feel so inclined to help spread the messages in this film, you can make a donation in the donation box out there. The official Chicago screening of Cut on this tour is Thursday evening at 7 p.m. at the Evanston Public Library, which is three short blocks from both Davis Street CTA and Metro Station stops. So if you think others in the Chicago area might be interested in this, please let them know. And I hope you can stay to the end tonight to watch the trailer for Ellie's next film. You will be very impressed. Ellie likes to tackle controversial issues, as his brother says. And I'm sure you will be quite impressed with his new documentary on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict of people without a land. And finally, I will be making a presentation next week here at 7 p.m., I believe, in this room, uh, to the Biology of Gender class, in which I'll have time to go into more detail about some of the issues raised this evening specifically about the anatomy and function of the penis. And you are all welcome to attend and bring your friends. So here's the movie.
my question is, um, when you were making this film here, the Dr. Claire Close, who was the chief of pediatric urology at the time, was quoted in a parenting magazine saying that the average pediatric urologist in the United States spends 25% of their time repairing poorly performed circumcisions. And so I'd like you to talk about the amount, how, how many children wind up actually at the pediatric urologist as opposed to the regular pediatrician and the family doctor for minor things, but how many have enough damage that they go to the pediatric urologist, and also to update us on what has happened with the Mogan clamp since you made the film. Sure. Well, I, I don't know that I can speak directly to the exact or precise number. There are, of course, an enormous number of unreported complications to circumcisions that occur every year in this country. I mean, in the United States, we circumcise more than one million baby boys every year. I think last year it was 1.3 million, maybe, if I'm not mistaken, something along those lines. So we're talking, uh, even with low estimates of the complications, we're talking about something like 26, 27,000 um, serious, significant complications every year in this country. And that ranges from sepsis to partial amputations of the glands to, in you know, serious, there, there's some rare cases, but actual deaths. There's some number, unknown number of deaths that occur every year. People have tried to give an estimate. I'm not so convinced by the numbers that have been given, but there are definitely babies that die every year from this procedure. Um, and the second part of your question was about the Mogan situation, right? So the Mogan clamp, which features prominently in the film, uh, the, the, the company Mogan uh, that makes those clamps has actually gone out of business, is my understanding, because uh, a prominent uh, genital injury lawyer by the name of David Llewellyn, who I had the pleasure of meeting earlier on this tour, uh, sued them into oblivion for one of the complications. Um, so that's, I think that's right. They're out of business. There, there now. have been a number of, of major lawsuits, and the company isn't paying out. And uh, because the Mohel has done this, and he has no money, the baby gets nothing. It, 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 in the lawsuits, if if it's a doctor that did it, you can sue the hospital, and you can sue the doctor, and you get some money. But if the Mohel does it, the baby is, you know, he loses the head of his penis, and well, that's too bad. So. All right, let's take uh, another question, please. Oh, okay. Um, I actually had um, a couple questions. And so there, there was a physician on the video talking about the separation of the layers of the foreskin. Sure. And so I guess my first one is a clarification, is the, the under layer is the mucosal membrane, which is separated from the, from the outer skin. Is that correct? Well, there are two structures. I mean, at birth, the structures are fused. So okay. it's a double layer sleeve. Imagine it as a sleeve okay. that folds back on itself. Mm -hmm. um, at birth, it's fused by a membrane called the synechia or the balanoprocutial membrane. Um, and it takes, this membrane dissolves over time naturally, but it, it takes a certain amount of time of maturation of the structures for the two structures to properly separate. So at birth, all the way up through puberty, typically, those two structures are fused. Okay, so what, when, the, when the structures are separated, what happens to the, the structure underneath that's not removed? Oh, okay, so that's a very good question. So the separation of the structures um, in circumcision is done uh, for the purposes of cutting it away. It just makes it easier to cut it away because you're trying to take off one layer. Now, typically in um, Jewish and American circumcision, what they do after they cut away the foreskin is they then tear away the remaining mucosa. Um, and uh, this has been done as a Jewish practice since the time, since the Hellenic times, 
when the rabbis instituted this more radical form of circumcision to prevent men from restoring their foreskins. It, it was not quite as radical in the original Jewish practice. Uh, and in America, and you saw Dr. Marx in the film taking up some gauze and, and literally just tearing away the underlayer. Yeah. Okay. And then I guess my, my second set of questions is what is the prevalence of circumcision of infants that, um, of, from families that aren't affiliated with the Jewish faith? In this country? In this country. Okay. So it's variable in different parts of the country. Um, but the national rate, my, uh, again, the numbers are a little difficult to come by because most of the official numbers that we have refer to hospital circumcisions only. Um, and there are many circumcisions that occur either in a ritual setting, but more prominently in um, sort of uh, pediatric offices, which are not counted. But my best reading of the, the current data is that the nationwide rate as it stands today is hovering somewhere just above 50%, uh, which has been on a steep decline uh, since the time when I was born in 1979, when it was closer to 85, 90%. Um, and it's been on a pretty steady decline since then. Different parts of the country have different rates. So on the West Coast, it's closer to 33%. And uh, here in the Midwest, it's closer to 70, 80%. Um, but overall, the nationwide statistics, and again, very hard to get reliable figures, but my guess is it's hovering a little bit over 50% right now. Okay, I, I just I guess I should say I'm I'm from Wyoming, which has a very very small Jewish population, and I would uh, the last time I had talked to someone about this issue, they said it was upwards of 90 percent. In um, Wyoming or nationwide? In in Wyoming, uh, Colorado, well, excluding like large metropolitan areas, yeah. um, but Wyoming, Montana, the Dakotas, Nebraska, yeah. a lot of the more rural rectangular states. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. So. Um, but again, there are very strong regional differences. Some of them have to do with um, ethnic culture. So uh, Latino culture is not a traditionally circumcising culture. So areas of the country where there's a higher Latino population, you're going to have lower rates of circumcision. Asian cultures, for the most part, with the notable exception of South Korea, don't have a, a strong circumcising culture. So places where you have large Asian populations, uh, Asian American populations, you're going to have lower numbers. But yeah, it's variable. But um, And again, there's a problem with getting good, reliable data, but my best guess is that nationwide, overall, a little bit over 50% right okay. now. Can I ask one more question? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not trying to hog the mic, but um, have you looked into the bullying aspect of it, like more in the adolescent phase when, you know, like they mentioned the locker room scene, and I remember um, boys talking, like rumors circulating about who was uncircumcised versus who was circumcised, and, and the kind of bullying that went into that. Um, right that. So have you, have you looked into that more? Or? Yeah, so that's what we call the shame argument in the film. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Raja Halwani, the analytic philosopher that I, that I interviewed, had a very compelling response to that. But I've got to tell you, I've been traveling around the country now. This is my 23rd or 24th stop on the tour. I can't remember exactly. Um, but all different parts of the country. And I've been meeting um, up with families who have decided intentionally to keep their boys intact. And I always ask them, you know, have they experienced any kind of shaming or the locker room thing that everyone hears about? And I've got to tell you that, that no one has said that there's ever been any kind. I mean, I've heard stories, and maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe in previous generations it was a bigger deal. But every single family that I spoke to said that it's not even an issue. Um, and that includes, by the way, Jewish families who have chosen not to circumcise their boys. It's, it's rare, but... I, I've come across a few, and of course, you know, this tour probably attracts them like a magnet, but, um, you know, so I was surprised to find that. Um, on that point, um, the question of whether or not 
let's assume for the sake of argument that that is a factor. I, I'm not trying to argue that that isn't, that can't be construed as a form of harm. I, I think a fair argument could be made that anything that you do to your children that makes them obviously different from everyone else is going to bring a certain amount of unwanted attention. Um, and that could be construed in a particular way as, as harm, but I don't think that that's enough to outweigh all of the ethical issues that I brought up. And I would go further than that. I'd say that if we're to be proud of our cultural differences in this society, um, I think about the things that an Orthodox Jew grows up with that makes them different from everyone else. There, there are things that are much more obvious, if you know what I mean, that make an Orthodox Jew different from the rest of society. And so they're also at risk of feeling shame. And I think our responsibility as parents is to instill in our children an ability to withstand you know, that sort of pressure. I'm going to add a, a little bit to what you said there. Uh, the circumcision rates vary quite a bit by individual hospital within a city. For example, the University of Chicago, in the latest numbers from 2009-2010, is circumcising 77% of the baby boys born here. And statewide, it's about 60%. Uh, the majority of hospitals in Chicago actually cut less than one-third. And we have the highest rate of infant circumcision in the entire city here. Uh, the next professor, highest rate was North Professor Western Schweder had a question. Could you please uh, hand in the mic? I'll hold. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I have three questions. The first is, had the San Francisco ballot initiative gone forward and you were a resident of San Francisco, you would move to San Francisco rather than Los Angeles and were a voter, would you have voted to ban male circumcision in the city of San Francisco? Is the question for me or for my father? No, it's for, for you. me. I know what your father would say. I want to know what <laughs> no, you, you would don't. say. Huh? No, you don't. I, I, based on what you said in here, I think you probably would not vote to ban male circumcision. Absolutely but, wrong. All right. I'm asking your son, though. I wasn't okay. asking All you. Right. <laughs> um, I, uh, I was asked to write an op-ed for the Jewish Daily Forward early in the, in the summer right. about this very question. and. I, I, I'm, gonna tr I'm not trying to evade the question. I'll, I'll answer it directly in a second, but I want to um, talk to what I wrote in that op-ed because um, I think that there are, uh, there are uh, some separate issues that need addressing. The first issue is whether or not circumcision is unethical. I think that's an important question that needs to be addressed. I tried to address it in the film. Another question, which is separate in my opinion, is whether or not circumcision should be illegal. And when I really, I really tried to come up with a reason um, for circumcision to not be illegal, and I had a very, very hard time. Now, of course, I'm biased, and you saw my opinion in the film, um, but I can't, I could not come up with a single defensible argument to suggest that circumcision should be legal, given the current empirical situation that we find ourselves in, which is that, especially, I mean, the vast majority of circumc circumcisions in this country um, are done in hospitals um, and are uh, almost in a way promoted by the medical establishment and that um, there's a great harm that comes from that. So, and I see part of the role of the state as protecting um, its citizens and in this case protecting its most vulnerable citizens. Whether this particular ballot initiative in San Francisco I would have voted for or not, I think I probably would have voted for making it illegal, yeah. Um, okay, my second question is Leonard Glick in your film referred to Christian attitudes towards Jews 
in Europe, for example, prior to, I think he said the 19th century or whenever, when it became more popular, and the judgment of barbarity leveled against Jews by Christians. Do you accept that judgment? I don't like the term barbaric because I find it's not very helpful. Um, so I you find just, you just, I mean, so you, the answer is no, you do not view Jews as engaging in a barbaric act. I would not use the word barbaric. I would use the word unethical. Okay. Um, and I, that, that's a really important distinction to me because um, I mean, it might sound like a distinction without a difference, but um, I, I, I'm, I'm honestly not trying to um, uh, sort of paint a picture of villains or of people doing something, you know, out of intentional malice. I think this is a very deeply embedded cultural practice that I'm questioning. I'm aware of that. Uh, both on the Jewish side and on the American side, it must be said. I think it's deeply embedded in our culture right now. Uh, I find it to be ethically problematic, and I'm, I'm trying to speak to that. My third question was whether you have, you mentioned South Korea. Of course, the Philippines is another case where they have extremely high circumcision rates, higher than the United States. But in South Korea, you have, you have, what? No, no. In fact, it's not primarily neonatal in, in either, neither South, South, Korea, Korea, in either South Korea or yeah. perhaps the Philippines. But in fact, South Korea is interesting because the first generation, the modal age of circumcision was males in their mid-20s coming in to be circumcised. And the country went from close to zero to levels above the United States in a very short amount of time. But it provides a data set, and there is a data set in which large numbers of South Korean males who were circumcised as adults after they already had had sexual experiences reported on whether or not it reduced their sexual experiences. You have someone in the film giving a testimonial about a reduction in, in, in sensation and sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. In the Korean study with a very large sample, overwhelmingly the, rep the typical report was no difference. And I'm wondering whether you are aware of that data. Yeah, I am, and we're now touching on an area that's really, um, and it must be said in Professor Schweder, I'm aware of your work on female genital cutting practices, and I think you raise some really important points on that. Um, and some of the same difficulties in talking about the relationship between female genital cutting practices and female sexual pleasure exist when we talk about the relationship between male genital cutting practices and male sexual pleasure. I would never deny that. However, having said that, um, my reading of the data is that you cannot um, remove the most sensitive part of the penis without affecting the sexual experience of the individual. I'm aware of some of the studies and the conflicting studies on um, you know, sexual satisfaction. I find it very tricky from a scientific empirical perspective to, um, to really uh, to find reliable data on this question. It's really hard when you're relying on someone who's self-reporting on a procedure that they had done for a reason that they thought was important. Um, you know, what is the reliability of that testimony in all of these studies? Um, so when I talk to people who question that side of it, what I tell them is the scientific fact that has been verified over and over is that there are on the order of 20,000 Meisner's corpuscles in the distal ridges of the foreskin. That's not disputed, even by circumcision proponents. Um, so you're doing a tremendous amount of neurological damage to the penis. That's just, that's a fact. Um, 
how that damage then relates or translates into differences in sexual experience are difficult to talk about but not impossible. And there's a, a recent uh, professor uh, pathologist in New Zealand by the name of Ken McGraw who's actually starting to map some of these circuits and talk in very specific terms about the differences between circumcised and intact male sexual experience. And he's finding some very interesting um, things. Um, I can go into detail about them if, 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 maybe if time permits a little later. But um, in addition to the South Korean study that you mentioned, I think a really important study to talk about that just came out this spring is a large-scale population-based study in Denmark, um, which was looking specifically, and it's one of the largest of its kind, and um, it was done with uh, methodological rigor, as far as I can tell. And they were looking at the relationship between circumcision and sexual dysfunction. Um, and they found that there was a higher level of sexual dysfunction in circumcised males, in, and in fact, a higher level of a condition uh, in which female partners of circumcised males um, have painful sexual intercourse. Um, and this was uh, just, this just came out in April of this year, um, which again, shouldn't surprise anyone who's familiar with sort of the basics of neurology and histology. Um, you know, when you're taking away that many nerve endings, some percentage of the population are gonna have, are gonna suffer from it. And you saw some examples of that in the film. Um, anecdotal as they may be, I think they're important. Hi, uh, two things. I actually wouldn't mind hearing your father's opinion on uh, the law that was proposed in South, oh, South Carolina, sorry, San Francisco, and what your vote would have been and why. But I, I did have a question. If, um, I suppose, I guess, in an Orthodox community, if, if a family elected not to have their son circumcised at eight days old, but he went through the procedure later, would he be sort of like have the, those rights returned to him or would he still be in a sort of gray area? Um, I would have voted for the, uh, the act in uh, San Francisco because I feel um, that circumcision outside ritual practice is an unethical act. And, um, and so then the question falls back on, well, how can a person who feels he's in a covenant or however they describe uh, the Orthodox or uh, other traditions uh, perform an unethical act on a baby. And that is, for me, the struggle, of course. Um, you know, generations have done it, and here I am with my son, two sons, and now uh, two grandsons. Um, and that remains a struggle for any sensitive Western trained uh, um, person in, in, in modern liberal ethics, how can you do that, you know? Um, I want to say one thing, and I don't want to compare the two, and at the same time I'm presenting this to you, but as a neurologist, um, I see children with head injuries. And um, the vast majority of the children that I see with head injuries um, um, are engaged in a, what I consider a, a barbaric sport called football. And now I come from a place where they, we play soccer. They play rugby. And um, despite my telling parents that they've had a concussion, you gotta be careful because subsequent concussions will leave permanent damage, 90% of the parents ignore me because this is the ritual, secular ritual, that these kids must go through 
in their puberty. This is, it is such a powerful ritual. And I'm not comparing that to genital mutilation or genital alteration. But I am saying that we all live in myths. We all live by ritual. Some may be orthodox, some may be secular, some may be national, you know? Um, and we, we have to deal with it. I mean, I think that those parents need to deal with that kind of pushing those kids into these uh, highly questionable uh, um, uh, sports uh, with against medical advice because they feel compelled to be part of a group, so that the kid feels to be part of a group, etc. So um, that answers that. The other question about you know this idea of being circumcised and uncircumcised and being in the group or being readmitted to the group, I, I feel is uh, you know to me. What Rabbi Lopatin said is absolutely uh, the way I feel about it, meaning you know, there are 613 commandments in the Bible, and this is one of them. Uh, if you don't do it, um, then there are a couple of laws you can't participate, like the Passover lamb, whatever. And once you do it, that readmits you, readmits you to it. Um, so it's not about, you know, you're not out of the club, into the club. Socially, however, as I said on the film, um, and contrary to what my son just said about the participants in this who've come up to him and said, my kid has had no problem, uh, even though he's in the locker room uh, um, as a Jewish boy without circumcision. Um, I stand by what I say there. In a tight-knit Orthodox community where every child is circumcised, um, it would rapidly become quite clear. Uh, we would get calls from uh, the teachers or the headmaster, and that kid would not survive in that school. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I just had two questions. As someone who is not of the Jewish faith um, and who was raised as a Christian, uh, the film raised a lot of questions for me about some assumptions that I had about circumcision, um, particularly the cleanliness aspect as well as you know protection against diseases and why I held those particular assumptions. Um, so I, I would love to hear that. I also study religion here. Um, and I would really, uh, I had not thought about until this evening, um, kind of the irony in the fact that circumcision was originally a practice um, to really set the Jewish population apart, as far as my understanding of, of the Hebrew Bible um, goes. And I, I thought it was interesting that it now is a much more widespread phenomenon amongst the American population, um, and how theologically that is justified. Um, and I would, I would love to hear what your father has to say about that as well. Do you want to respond? Um, I, I think a lot of practices um, in the, on the American scene, not the European scene, have to do with what we know as the Judeo-Christian tradition. There has been a merging of uh, the two cultures into this kind of loose identity um, that being American, um, and that's, I'm not talking about the latest multicultural business, but before that, um, this identification um, of American history with Protestant, going back to the Bible, the literal reading of the Bible, um, that has produced this kind of 
very amorphous Judeo-Christian identity, and I think that that is very open to this and other kinds of things like kosher being uh, in, you know, very, uh, it's considered fashionable at times or places. So, um, so I think that that's, that's one thing that may address this. I also have to tell you, um, as a student of theology in a university, that you really have to apply um, very tight rules of scholarship when it comes to history and theological history. So that the kind of fluffy things that you heard at times, uh, even from, from Dr. Glick, about Hellenism, and uh, these are all wild statements that need really to be unpacked. We know very little about um, attitudes towards circumcision in the late Hellenic and late antique period, other than self-professing texts within the Talmud and the ancient uh, uh, and, and, and the early church fathers. And these were polemical texts. So you have to take those as a backdrop only and not as the gospel of what is true or really went on. Um, and when you start digging in that way, you get a very different view. Um, a lot of this stuff is late, it's medieval, it's reading back, archaizing into history what was never there for the sake of polemic arguments. So the fact, you know, the statement uh, circumcision was made to make us different is like saying kosher food was there because it, uh, pork is unhygienic. You know, these are all just late medieval uh, polemics read back into history. I mean, um, reading Jung and reading um, Mercier Eliad and all these uh, archaeologists and um, anthropologists, one sees that we don't know why rituals emerge from the myth of clouds of history. We don't know. And by the late antique period, it was all polemical texts. So, you know, I, I can't even agree with my uh, friend Rabbi Warsh, you know, that uh, it's covenant. You know, covenant is a late construction. It's a late construction. Uh, in, in the middle uh, 19th century, the Wissenschaft uh, German uh, Protestant scholars looked at Berit as covenant. Ah, covenant theology. You know, this is all late notions of history, late notions of intellectual history. Uh, the truth is we don't know what caused these myths to occur. And, um, um, and, and therefore, any globalizing statements, even within my tradition, have to be looked at very skeptically, and especially if you're doing theology in a university. I'd, I'd like to add to that also that this is true in general of cultural practices, I think. That when you look at a cultural practice and someone says, well, the reason this cultural practice is practiced is X. So like with circumcision, some people are going to tell you, and this, this <coughs> applies equally to female genital cutting practices too. They'll say, oh, well, it's to reduce sexual pleasure. Well, that was a reason given at a time by some member of a culture, but it's not really like, it, it, it's misleading to say that because cultural practices exist and rationales for cultural practices kind of collect like a snowball effect over time. Um, so the whole, I think the question of why do we circum, like the question I asked a lot of people in the film, why do we circumcise our boys is a bit of a, you know, it's not such a great question because ultimately, you know, it's a cultural practice and different reasons are given. And of course, there are politics in, in, embedded in all of the different rationales from different perspectives. 
I'm wondering if you, either of you, could speak to the, uh, the, the clinical studies that the rabbi mentioned uh, for uh, preventing disease transmission in the African studies anyway? More recent literature has not supported uh, the statistical analyses that were brought up in those papers. And uh, as far as my review of uh, the literature, I, as I said on the film, I see no um, um, statistical, statistically significant benefit of doing this procedure in any group. And I'd like to add to that um, that the African studies specifically are a really interesting um, example because they're being used now to fuel a campaign for male circumcision in Africa. And it's a really, I mean, it's very difficult for me to watch because, you know, we're out there sort of condemning female genital cutting practices, you know, like it's the worst thing in the world. And we're now out there promoting our genital cutting practices as if it's the best thing in the world. And, and th this to me is, is, is sort of the height of hypocrisy and um, to borrow a term from Professor Schweder, liberal imperialism. Um, it really is um, a horrendous situation, but it's also a reminder that our so-called advanced scientific post-industrial society is not above um, using sort of very, you know, playing fast and loose with data in order to justify our own cultural practices. And I think that's a really, really striking example of that. Great. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to make sure I understood fully um, your pos senior's position, the dad's position on, um, on San Francisco. As I understood the San Francisco ballot initiative, it was not going to say, if you do this for ritual purposes with a moil in your home on the eighth day after birth, it's okay. It was going to ban all circumcision in the city of San Francisco, which would have included those who would be engaging in it for the reasons that you so, I thought, articulately and brilliantly uh, voiced in this film. So were you imagining that there would be an exception for Orthodox Jews? And are you yourself prepared to say that Jews who are not Orthodox but feel like they're part of an historical ethical community that they want to honor, not for medical reasons, but because of their sense of ancestry, should, should be prohibited in San Francisco while Orthodox Jews should be given an exception because they do it with a moil at home on the eighth day? Um, I would not distinguish between Orthodox and non-Orthodox. I feel that that is a, um, um, a peculiar Western division that doesn't occur among Sephardim, and, um, um, and it's, very, it's not useful anymore anyway. So I, I would feel that anyone uh, who felt for whatever reason within the cultural context of being uh, in this faith community, that would qualify for me. Um, and I, I do feel that a million babies being circumcised this year um, uh, is problematic from an ethical point of view. And I feel that uh, San Francisco uh, taking the lead would have really uh, given a jolt to the rest of the country to, uh, to consider the ethical ramifications of such a practice. 
even though I know that for members of my own community, they'd have to go outside the city limits to have it done. But I, th I felt that, um, that um, you know, there's just no justification for it outside mythical ritual practice. So following up on Professor Schrader's question for, um, for senior, if you don't want to distinguish between uh, Orthodox and Reformed Jews, why do you make, the, as you said, you know, there are secular rituals and, and beliefs just as much as religious, so why would you make a distinction and make an exception for someone who wanted to circumcise for secular reasons or for an atheist who wanted to circumcise their child versus someone who wanted to do it for cultural or religious reasons? Bloody good question. <laughs> um, I would have to say that um, if a person who is atheist or not religious or non, you know, non uh, um, participating in this act for a ritual um, should be advised that there's no medical benefit for it. And um, then the question is, what would be his motive to do that to his, to his child? I mean, I, I don't know what other motive one would do it to one's child. So I'm wondering whether you really think that, you know, I believe in the United States right now, parents of Down syndrome's children can perform operations on very young children to normalize their appearance so they won't be stigmatized. And, and those operations can be painful and they involve all sorts of things around the face. Um, yet we permit that to go on because we have a notion of a certain ideal look. So, you know, I'm wondering why wouldn't the arguments that come from aesthetics and from gender identity reasonably play a part in such thinking? Well, I'll take that. <laughs> um, if it were merely, um, if it were merely a cosmetic surgery that wasn't actually, um, causing serious neurological damage. There would be, a, the case against it wouldn't be as strong. I don't think, I, I mean, you're, you're, the issue you brought up about parents uh, operating on Down syndrome children, I think is a, is, is a very interesting case. I don't think that just because it happens to be the normative practice in our culture that it's ethically okay. I think that some serious ethical questions need to be raised about that. Uh, another uh, analogy that can be drawn with circumcision and, and genital cutting practices uh, are the practice of uh, radical gender reassignment surgery on infants who have ambiguous genitalia. Um, and I think that there are serious ethical problems that we need to talk about, and I want to talk about as a member of this culture. It's good to talk about it, but would you, would you draw the conclusion drawn by at least someone interviewed in this movie that Down syndrome parents who decide that the three-year-old is going to be stigmatized, is going to look abnormal, and they want to normalize their appearance, and they engage in this operation without informed consent, obviously, um, are less loving or protective of their children? I'm not here to judge parents. I'm here no, to... I'm talking about the voice represented in the movie. That's well, essentially said that. Well, what I'm... No, it didn't say that anyone was uncaring or unloving. That's really not what I was getting at. I'm, I'm talking about the woman in the movie who said, here's what mothers ought to feel like. Oh, okay. She was implying okay. strongly that those who circumcise their children are less loving and protective of Okay, all right, no. And that's, that may be a point at which... Yeah, yeah, and I think she deserves a voice. She's thought about this subject deeply. I might not agree with... 
I might not agree with that particular point, but that doesn't mean, and again, this is really important, just because something is a cultural practice doesn't mean that it isn't harmful. There are lots of cultural practices that are harmful. There are lots of religious practices that are responsible for the abuse of children. And if we were just to put a shield over all those practices simply by virtue of the fact that they're cultural practices, we therefore have to allow them, I don't think we'd get very far in advancing our society to being a more ethical place. And so when someone raises a criticism of a widely practiced cultural practice um, because they feel that there's an ethical problem, and I think I articulated the ethical problem very clearly. I think you're causing neurological damage and a permanent body modification on uh, an individual who cannot consent. Um, I think that's a serious ethical problem. And uh, the complications, of course, add to this, the, the fact that it's somewhat dangerous, even if you know, uh, the risks are relatively minor, you still have some number of people dying from this every year. I think it's incumbent upon us as a society to look inside and say, well, if we're doing something routinely that's causing harm, we should reevaluate it. Ethical position distinguishes between painful and harmful. I think circumcision is both painful and harmful. No, but if, if you could show that it did not produce lasting harm but was painful, would that be, be ethical grounds for you for saying the culture well, should stop doing it? Well, you would certainly weaken my case against the practice, but I don't know that you'd obliterate it. I mean, I think uh, one of the essays that's very interesting on the subject is uh, the Benatars. Uh, they did a an essay uh, in, uh, that was published in the Journal of Bioethics, and they sort of really looked at this subject very well, um, very uh, rigorously, and they came to the conclusion, you know, actually, that's very different, they came to a very different conclusion than the conclusion I come to on the ethics of it, but one of the things that they had absolutely no problem admitting is that um, causing pain to another human being is ethically wrong. End of story. Now, they say we should use anesthetic for this reason and all that, but so I don't, think it's, I don't think it's controversial in any sort of ethical quarters or ethics literature that intentionally causing pain to another individual for no good reason is an ethically problematic thing to do. Well, for no good reason, of course, is the, the, uh, the clicker there. Of course, people who engage in ordeals around the world are doing it for good reasons from their point of view. And experiencing pain is often preparation for anticipated other pain. In the Jewish tradition, the suffering that's experienced, which is viewed as minor, of course, and temporary, is part of a history of suffering of the people and is meant to, in some way, draw you into an ethical community by virtue of it. Right? And so, you know, it, from, if, you, if you think that's not a good reason, that can be argued. But it's not as though this is arbitrary assault. Oh, I'm not suggesting it's arbitrary assault, but I'm suggesting from the point of view of looking at this from an ethical perspective, um, you have to accept that you're doing this not for a legitimate medical reason. I think we can all accept that. I think even the American Academy of Pediatrics at this point in time accepts that there is no legitimate medical reason for doing this. We can talk about cultural reasons. I happen to think that cultural reasons, as important as they are, do not outweigh, and again, we're getting into this sort of hypothetical realm in which all of the evidence, empirical evidence that I presented about the neurological damage somehow magically disappeared, um, which 
you know, I take issue with because I think that the evidence is there. I don't think it's controversial that you're ablating the most sensitive part of the penis and that that has significant effects on male sexual performance and experience. So if you accept that, then this whole hypothetical scenario of if it only caused pain and no lasting damage is kind of like the ticking time bomb scenario that people who try to support torture bring up. It's, it's interesting you know, for sort of intellectual masturbation purposes, but when it comes down to it, that's not the world we live in. Can I add something about pleasure? Because uh, there's been a lot of discussion tonight about the loss of pleasure because of this. Um, and again, I don't want to engage in archaizing or trying to read psychological motives into the tradition, but, but it has been mentioned from early medieval times that there is an awareness that the, the, this amputation, this circumcision, um, and the resultant loss of pleasure is intentional that uh, other rituals to do with interaction between man and wife in the marital uh, period um, relating to her cycle uh, is intentional. Um, and that is part of uh, this uh, kind of cultural religious move to reduce sexual pleasure, to reduce uh, engagement uh, to the full in the physical world. So I do think that there is uh, a balance to the notion of, you know, I, I really want all the pleasure I can get versus this being in covenant, so to speak, um, is being in a position, um, not like a monk, of course, because that's total celibacy, but it's somewhere in that spectrum of... Um, um, Right. 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 But he was wrong, and they, and if you had asked, I, I, you should have asked Ed Lauman. Maybe you did about masturbation rates among circumcised and uncircumcised. I did ask Professor Lauman about that because his um, landmark 1997 study, which was a large population-based study in which he extrapolated data about. Um, the effects of circumcision on sexual behavior, one of the findings was that men who are circumcised masturbate more after all other factors like socioeconomic status and education are controlled for. And I asked him why, why that was. And I'll tell you what he told me. He said he thinks that men who are circumcised don't get the same kind of sexual satisfaction out of their sex acts, and therefore they're constantly chasing a satisfaction well, they that, can't that, get. That's a totally speculative. You asked me what but, Professor yeah, Lauman yeah, said. But, but, but the point is, the the intent of, as was described, was to reduce masturbation. It's one of the justifications for introducing circumcision. I, I don't. I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure that that's accurate. I mean, I think in the 19th century, uh, the temperate movement had everything to do with. Uh, the British public school, uh, private school, public school uh, headmasters who've written in their diaries, you know, we have to deal with this problem, we're, you know, we're building muscular Christianity and empire and we need to cut this master, and that comes over to America. Um, I don't think Maimonides meant that. No, not Maimonides. No, okay, but, right. but the, right. the, 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 Notice that whichever result you got, if, if circumcised males had masturbated less, 
there would have been the interpretation, look right. at the terrible thing it's doing. If they masturbate more, look at the sure. terrible thing they're doing. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, think that that's, that particular data point is not so helpful in the discussion. I think, it, uh, Professor Lauman, you're absolutely right. What he was saying was speculation. The data is the data. The data does prove, and he took great satisfaction in this, that the original 19th century rationales were sort of faulty because clearly we now have data that suggests that, that it didn't work. Having said that, it is important to note that until the sexual revolution, um, it was, and this goes for a long stretch of history, it was sort of generally accepted that the foreskin is a pleasurable part of the penis and that removing it reduces sexual pleasure. And that, um, <laughs> you know, that, um, when you do take the foreskin off, it actually does, in a certain way, make masturbation more difficult. You require artificial lubrication. Uh, men who are intact do not require artificial lubrication to masturbate. So uh, there's a certain horrible logic to it <laughs> that by immobilizing the penis and forcing you to seek out artificial lubrication for masturbation, and if you don't use artificial uh, lubrication for masturbation, it makes it much more painful and difficult. There's kind of a, you know, I don't know, a, there, there's a logic to it. It wasn't just completely out of the blue, obviously. Well, there are a lot of good comparative studies to be done in Africa because you have circumcised and uncircumcised ethnic groups, and I'd like to see the evidence on reproductive success, frequency of coitus, and all this. And if you showed me that there was a major difference in African groups with males in their sexual behavior related to that, that would be impressive, but i like to see that. What about evidence. the Danish study that I mentioned? The it, Danish study? I, said I, I mentioned a Danish study that was, that was just released in April that showed higher levels of sexual dysfunction in circumcised men, population-based study, and other kinds of problems. There's cherry-picking going on on both sides of this argument. Oh, so you don't accept that study? No, I don't. I think you better do some good meta, systematic meta-analysis, not just as I said, we didn't have the voice in here of the South Korean male circumcised at age 30 who tells you no difference in sexual performance. Okay, we, so you don't accept that there's neurological damage that occurs through circumcision? I don't even know what to, what, what to, what to how to interpret neurological damage, okay? If you, you don't? mean that there were neurological effects, yes. If you, neurological damage, you mean circumcised males can't win Nobel Prizes? No. They can't think I mean, properly? They can't make no, judgments? No, I, I think what he's I mean, saying is that uh, at the histological level, the amputation does amputate end corpuscles, which are sensory nerve endings. Yeah, that's, that's, that's simply a description of physical events. It has no right. value implication whatsoever. Damage does. And so it well, seems to me if you start I calling that right. damage, you've made a big leap. Right, and I think with functional MRI, um, we will now be able to actually map um, coitus in the, in the circumcised versus the non-circumcised. And you may well see uh, slightly different pathways because of that histological change. Right, but and what that translates into cultural and the interpretation of the experience of pleasure, that's right, it's, it's speculative. I'm going I'm to have to run, unfortunately. But come next week and hear the, the, the New Zealand guy talk about the neurological. All right. all right. Well, thank you all so much for coming. Uh, I'm now going to show you a trailer for my upcoming documentary that I've been working on for three years now called The People Without a Land. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at 
thecutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. 